This is a podcast about Vancouver, our community, our culture, our quirks, and all the colors that combine to make our city of glass. My name's Mo Amir, and I'll be your host. This is Van Color. Sherlock Knives is it, so I'll hurry up on it. This is Van Color. We are going to revisit the municipal election because there are a lot of interesting ideas in the field that I want to explore prior to October 20th when you cast your vote for a brand new mayor and city council. And I understand that some of you are not interested in politics, I get it, but today I promise you we will learn a lot. Have you heard about people talking about zoning and how it's going to fix Vancouver or destroy Vancouver? Upzoning, making room, land tax, what is it all? I'm basic and I'm going to ask all those questions and I have someone who is keen on giving us her take on all of it. Today on This is Van Color, I am joined by one of One City Vancouver's candidates for city council. A Vancouverite through and through, she is one of the increasingly many millennial candidates in this campaign and she's wearing her passions on her sleeve, be they tackling inequality contributing to climate solutions, and deepening democratic engagement. She has supported progressive local governance at the Columbia Institute Center for Civic Governance. She's done program and community outreach in the downtown east side and directed after-school programs to support students and their families alike. She has a wealth of volunteer and professional experience. She is a founding member of One City Vancouver and a United Church Minister. Ladies and gentlemen, Christine Boyle. Christine, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me today. My pleasure. Thanks for coming out. Um, before we get started, I have a genuine question for you. Yes. And I promise you it's in good faith. So if you find it uncouth for me to ask this, please forgive me in advance, but it comes from a good place. Okay, now I'm nervous, but shoot, <laughs> go ahead. At some point, can you bless me and this podcast? Uh, yes, sure. You're allowed absolutely. to do that? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we can work that in maybe near the end. Give people, you know, if we're if we're starting with the zoning, we'll give people something uh, to to hang out, to hang on for. Right. Exactly. Yeah, great. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I do mean that sincerely. Um, my my late mother taught me a lot about religion, and she was Muslim herself, but um, she taught me about different religions, and her whole thing was teaching me about the commonality of all these different ideas of trying to tap into source and yeah. how it's through your actions of gratitude and kindness to yourself and kindness to others, even if they're strangers, and that being what religion is all about. So I've always, even though I don't consider myself religious, quote unquote, I've always had a great appreciation and I will never turn down a blessing. All right. You know, <laughs> so I've had, uh, I have people occasionally, because I've spent lots of time doing organizing in faith communities, I've had people from a variety of traditions ask me if they can pray for me during this election. And to be honest, it's oh. not something I think of asking for. Okay. Um, uh, so it was but, uncouth. That was a bad question. No, no, it's great. No, I'll take it. Um, and it, it, it's always interesting to me to get to have that offer. Um, and my response is always, of course, but not to pray that I win, like mm. not to pray on an outcome, but to, but to, um, to pray to hold for me that I can um, run with integrity, you know, that I can uh, continue to be 
uh, lifting up other people's voices, that I cannot get caught up in the sort of politics of politics, I guess. That's right. my ask if cool. people are offering, um, because on those fronts, I'll take all the help I can get, you know, <laughs> and then the election will be decided by people who vote in the election. But but between now and then, um, I have no uh, doubt that it will be challenging and Totally. Yeah. So sure. I, I like that approach. And, and I like that it's not outcomes based. It's more about um, sort of process based. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I'll tell you what, in my next Shavasana, after my next yoga class, I'm going to put out that intention for All you. Right. That you Thank don't get you. caught Great. up in the politics of politics. <laughs> I love it. it. <laughs> Thanks. So this podcast is all about you. You are running for city council. I've asked Ken Sim this. I've asked Kennedy Stewart this. And I'm going to pose the same question to you. Why are you running? Why is this a good idea? Great question. Uh, so, so I grew up in Vancouver, like you said. I've, uh, I've lived all over Vancouver. I've worked all over Vancouver um, mm-hmm. from from the downtown east side and doing youth work in East Van. I taught cycling programs out at Jericho Park when okay. I was uh, in my early twenties. Um, I feel like I've seen the best of Vancouver. Uh, in in my life here in festivals mm-hmm. like the Lunar New Year Festival and the Folk Festival. Um, and like most of us, I've seen it suck the life out of people. Mm-hmm. I've had uh, many of my favorite small businesses closed down. I've had friends, countless friends, move out of town, sometimes because they couldn't afford to buy a place here, but but as often because they couldn't afford, they couldn't find a stable place to rent where they felt like they could mm. stay for a little while. They could register their kids for school and know they'd be in the neighborhood for a while. Um, so I feel like in my lifetime, I've witnessed Vancouver at an increasing pace becoming this sort of shiny, empty city. Uh, and it worries me. Um, and I think city council has a role to play in shifting that direction. And I And I want to be part of making that happen. Part of the solution. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, Obviously, this has been a long time coming. You've had some previous political experience as well. Um, What led you to being the one of the founding members of One City? Sure. So I've been involved politically. I mean, I've been an activist since I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. uh, And and politics play a role in that. And so my focus has, has never, my main focus hasn't been on electoral politics, but I've okay. always been involved in parties during elections to help get good candidates mm-hmm. uh, in office because it makes a difference for all of the issues that I care about. Of course. You know, it doesn't, I don't think um, who we elect uh, makes all the difference. I think we still need social movements, and that's where most of my focus has always been, and, and community building. But I've been involved in trying to elect good people, uh, and I've seen the difference that good people can make in mm-hmm. office. Um, so, uh, so I was a COPE member many years ago. I was involved in COPE mm-hmm. for quite a few years, and then I was part of forming One City um, because I wanted. To be part of a political party uh, that that felt um, positive and supportive uh, and where I could do the best organizing that I wanted to do around local issues, which really matter a lot to me. I, I care about a lot of provincial issues, I'm uh, as I think we'll hope we'll get to talk about. I'm particularly sure. passionate about climate change uh, and, and climate justice, but 
municipal issues I'm super nerdy about. And so I <laughs> wanted to uh, find a municipal home, a political party that was home. And um, for various reasons, that wasn't uh, feeling like cope anymore. And um, and I didn't, I was uh, nervous about the amount of uh, money that Vision got from developers. And mm. so it didn't feel like Vision was that home either. And I was hearing that from lots of people. And so a bunch of us got together and we formed one city. Cool. And for for listeners and uh, myself included who, who aren't really familiar with one city, when yes. was the party founded? In the spring of 2014. Okay. We founded. So um, that was the last general municipal election. Mm-hmm. It was in the lead up to that. We ran RJ Aquino, who's a young Filipino organizer. Mm-hmm. Um and he did he did very well for a for a new party. I think he got thirty something thousand votes in that okay, general well. election. Um he had run as a candidate with Cope four years earlier. So we ran RJ as our first candidate. The joke was one city, one candidate. Um <laughs> you know, wasn't the joke we made up, but we took it. Uh and uh um, RJ did very well. And then in the by-election, we ran Judy Graves, who's okay. a longtime uh, housing and homelessness advocate mm-hmm. at the city level um, and a and a real inspiration for me and some of my frontline work. Uh, and in the by-election, we also ran two candidates for school board, Carrie Bursick and Erica Jaff. And Carrie got elected, so right. she is sitting on school board right now. And she's been from everything I've heard from folks who follow school board very closely, she's been uh, incredible and tireless uh, in her advocacy at that level. So mm-hmm. she's running again. Erica is running again as well. She did very well in the by-election. Um, and we're running a third school board candidate, Jennifer Reddy, who okay. uh, has worked for many years with the school with the Vancouver School Board supporting immigrant and refugee youth. Hmm. She teaches out at SFU right now. She's amazing. So the three of them are running for school board. I'm so thrilled about it. I think they'll be really strong voices at that level. And then Brandon Yan and myself are running for council. And Brandon uh, is also amazing. I mean, here I could just keep gushing about our slate. Um, (laughs) Brandon uh, has done sustainability and public policy and advocacy work for quite a while as well. He works it out out on screen, uh, out he works, let me get this right, he works in out at Out in Schools and for the Queer Film Festival. Oh, okay. Um, cool. Amazing guy. So we're running a relatively small slate. We've been around four and a half years, and I'm really hopeful that all five of us can get elected and move some important issues forward. Well, one thing I have to say is, and um, and this does not take away from the credentials at all, is that you guys do come off as like the cool party, though. And, I, and maybe you and Brandon, like because of youth or um, definitely on social media, like there's just this cachet that I think you guys have and this uh, maybe it's an energy that's that's being injected into this election that uh, I think a lot of other parties either might be trying to emulate or um, I, I would assume would want. There's just this vibrancy that I see in both of you. Yeah, well, if you can tell my 14-year-old that, then I'd really appreciate that. <laughs> uh, uh, give me a little credential Mom, there. Mom's but, the cool candidate. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I do think there's a way that One City is doing politics, which is is unapologetically bold and mm-hmm. progressive, um, but is also uh, inclusive and personal and warm in a way that we we hope and we're finding is appealing to people. 
Um, as I'm sure many of your listeners experience, politics is sometimes a sort of mean and cutthroat place. And, and particularly on the left, there's this sense often uh, of a kind of purity culture. You need to know enough. You need to be mm. radical enough. Um, and lots of people come just with their own lived experiences, and they don't know what zoning means, but they know that they can't find a place to live. Yeah. Uh, so so I'm glad to hear that, because that's certainly <laughs> not that we're going for cool, but we're going for this is a place where you can find yourself and get involved uh, and um, and find some belonging in the political process, which mm-hmm. which I think matters. Well, well, let's get into that and let's talk about some of the issues. Uh, one thing that that you just sort of mentioned as well that that one city is advocating for with regards to um, the housing affordability crisis is this idea of inclusive neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And before we sort of define what that means, what does it mean when when you say or one city says exclusionary zoning in Vancouver? So there's a so zoning is uh, just refers to the rules that get placed on how different pieces of land can get used around the city. It's a okay um, a, a planning term. Mm-hmm. So exclusionary zoning describes um, and this is my pretty lay person. Uh, understanding of I told you this, I'm basic so, you know, so I need yeah. a basic okay, explanation <laughs> I'm sure some planner will listen and be like she got that wrong um exclusionary zoning uh is a type of zoning that limits what can be built on I mean all zoning in some way or another limits what can be built mm-hmm. exclusionary zoning um almost always refers to uh swaths of a city that that can only have single family homes or single dwellings on them like one big home mm-hmm. um and and i say or i try to say single dwellings instead of single family homes because the reality is for lots of people and particularly for immigrant communities many generations will share that home sure. um, or or a couple families together but the idea is of exclusionary zoning was um that only big standalone homes could be built in those areas of the city. Um, and the history of it is interesting, um, and it's pretty explicitly classist and racist uh, in in building these areas of the city that were off-limits to lots of people um, and that had a certain kind of character to them um, mm-hmm. and couldn't be... Uh, so historically speaking, who are we talking about? Like, who is being excluded um intrinsically through through these uh, these zones so these zoning renters were being excluded okay. i mean most working class people in the city were being excluded okay. from these neighborhoods mm-hmm. um and and in some of them that has shifted a bit and people still rent and people rent out basements and whatnot but um that the history of exclusionary zoning is to create sort of higher class enclaves in the city right um and the reality now is that they are uh, the the most expensive neighborhoods to live in in Vancouver. But those zoning uh, limits still exist. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in a an, an single family home sure. uh, in southwest Vancouver. Um, you know, it was a lovely neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and most people can't afford to live there. Um, and... And it's more than half of the city's land that is on in a, in these areas, neighborhoods zoned for single dwellings. Oh, still. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's predominantly <clears throat> what you're. So what you're saying is it's predominantly exclusionary zoning of these. Yeah. So and there's homes. been changes over time. There's uh, there's basement suites allowed, um, but there mm-hmm. was some kerfuffle that those suites aren't allowed to have. And and I think this change just happened very recently. They weren't allowed to have entrances at the front of the house because that would seem to be that would destroy the character of the neighborhood to oh, have okay. two front entrances. <laughs> so basement suites had to have back doors. But so that's changing. Um you can you can have a legal basement suite, you can have a some amount of infill in the back, a laneway house or something. So mm-hmm. slowly there's been tweaks to this, but um it's been a a difficult political issue that the most local politicians have been fearful of upsetting what sometimes gets referred to as the home voter, like upsetting folks in these neighborhoods who don't want to see the character of their neighborhood changing. Um, uh, And there's been a lot of, um, there's been a lot of fear mongering and rallying up of folks in their neighborhoods that if it changes, it'll suddenly all be, you know, condos everywhere and, and, everything gets lost. So it's a, mm-hmm. been a pretty divisive uh, issue. And Certainly, in yeah. a city like Vancouver, both with huge discrepancy in wealth, a huge wealth gap, um, and a lot of mistrust in local government, it, that, that fuels it, it makes it a harder issue. So one city is talking about um, transformative zoning, what we're really talking about is creating more housing options Mm -hmm. in more neighborhoods across the city. Um, Because the reality is that most of these single dwelling homes across the city are unaffordable to the majority of Vancouverites. One of the pieces that we think is needed in addressing the housing crisis uh, is to, to build more on those properties. And I'm not talking about uh, condo towers. Okay. We have in Vancouver, um, we have enough condo towers. You know, <laughs> in the supply, in this, in the supply uh, and demand debate, um, what we should be focusing on, and what I think we're focusing on in a lot of places, is the right kind of supply. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which and I always do find that supply and demand debate quite interesting because something that you and One City has also acknowledged that is that there is an abundance of expensive condos, including a lot of empty homes. So you would agree that there is, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you, I guess, would you agree that there is excess supply, but sort of excess of the wrong type of supply? Yeah, I mean, I think the simplest big picture um, problem with our housing crisis is that housing's being treated as a commodity, mm-hmm. as an investment and not as a place to live. Um, and so we need to tackle that and we need to tackle that in a whole bunch of ways. So mm-hmm. one city, you know, I think anyone that tries to tell you that there's any one solution to the housing <laughs> crisis um, is is wrong. Yeah. Uh, or it, that I think j- the municipal government is solely responsible or yeah. can turn it around by themselves. I think it's it's a little naive. Like they can certainly help alleviate a lot of it or put in policies that might help. But it is much bigger than just civic civic government. There's yeah. so many different factors involved. Absolutely. And and we know that because it's a problem in every major city mm-hmm. around the world. So so two of the solutions that one city is bringing to the table on the housing crisis are around 
uh, zoning and mm-hmm. and in particular talking about um, building more uh, apartments, a lot more rental units, more apartments, um, townhomes, duplexes and multiplexes uh, and and co-ops in as many places as we can build them in those neighborhoods that are currently big family homes mm-hmm. um, and that right now can only, if they get torn down, can only be replaced with another big another family, big family home. home and increasingly a bigger family home because the land is so expensive. Um, so, so this is what you mean when you say inclusionary uh, neighborhoods. Is yeah, right? when we or... when we talk about every neighborhood for everyone, that's yeah. what we mean. We want there to be options, housing options for okay. all sorts of people in each neighborhood, which mm-hmm. isn't the way that it um, that it currently the cur- city the is currently is. zoned. Okay. Um, so that's that's one piece of the puzzle, um, and it won't be the whole solution because sure. even you know a. a old family home becoming um, a fourplex mm-hmm. is still not going to be affordable as a fourplex to a lot of Vancouverites. It's going to be yeah. more affordable. So I sometimes think about it like that we need to shift everything to be more affordable than what was passed there. So I think it's an mm-hmm. improvement to, to build a fourplex or row home townhomes where there was once just one big old home. Sure. And I think that brings me to my next question is, you know, it's great to say we'll we'll change some of the zoning of these single family homes and put up duplexes or um, sort of multi-unit places, not necessarily big high rises. Um, but then what what can the, the city government do to ensure that these homes are affordable for both buyers and renters according to local incomes? So m- more rental is one of the one of the solutions on rental. The okay. vacancy rate in Vancouver is, I think, 0.6 percent, mm-hmm. which is uh, which drives rents way up, mm-hmm. um, and also is a is a significant issue in terms of safety and stability for renters. I hear lots of renters who who aren't going to complain to their landlord that they're that the lock is broken or the shower right. isn't working because because if you can't if you get booted out then your chances of finding another place are so low. So mm-hmm. so more rental is a piece of it. Um, but the affordability challenge uh, is is real. And the market, the housing market in Vancouver is broken and it's, and it's not going to be able to get at affordability very easily and very quickly. So partly that's where the land value capture comes in, which is the okay. second um, big bold and important, I think, idea that one city is talking about. Um, so walk me through this. What, yes. What is the land value capture? Because I've heard a lot about land value taxes and, and it's other terms like that. So let's yeah, go through and, a step-by-step. And by those step. terms, um, different terms get used and, and they, for the most part, they, they refer to a similar mechanism, which is um, land value capture uh, measures the increase in a, in a, land value so not of the whole property if you're Mm -hmm. building a new deck or doing a kitchen reno that's separate but it measures the lift or the increase in value of a piece of land over any given time and in vancouver in bc we're pretty well set up to do something like that because we have this provincial body called bc assessment Mm -hmm. um, a very capable and well-regarded body that that does these assessments and, and seems to 
get it right. Mm -hmm. um, so then land lift measures the increase in land value, um, and it taxes a portion of that lift. Uh, and so our proposal is that that income generated through a land value capture would go directly into building really affordable housing. So it helps okay. at the, I think the increase in housing options helps at kind of the higher mid to higher level range of the housing crisis where, mm -hmm. you know, you hear these stories of like a family with two professional income earning parents who can't find a place to rent or buy. So there are some options there, but the housing that we would prioritize building from the income generated from a land value capture is really intended to focus on the lower half of the income spectrum um, and how the housing crisis is so strongly hurting folks at that end. So mm -hmm. building um, with some subsidy, uh, building public housing on public land, building more co-ops. Um, mm -hmm. and non-market housing. Yeah, non-market housing. Okay. Um, that gets at affordability. Okay. Cool. So, uh, um, has the has the details of this land value capture been worked out in the in the platform yet? Because I don't want to ask too many questions if sure. if it hasn't. So, <laughs> so a few of them have, and we've okay. been having um, lots of conversations with uh, economists and and folks who think about this. There's been lots of excitement sure. that it's will hopefully be on the table will be talked about in this election um in the vancouver charter we would need the provincial government to help um to allow us to implement it so oh some is of, that right okay yeah, so some of the details you know we know one city knows we're running two people for council like i have no illusion that we get to be elected and go in and call the shots. Um, and so, I, you guys are pretty cool. Yeah, so yeah, I don't exactly. know. We might have good memes, um, but uh, so on the one hand, you know, there are folks who, when we announced the land value capture, have said have very specific questions and and important mm -hmm. questions on pieces of it that need to be figured out. Um, and and we haven't figured all of them out because we're going to get elected and look around at who else is at the table and. And that council is going to need to work with the provincial government mm -hmm. to create a made in Vancouver solution, a made in Vancouver plan for a land value capture. Right. So it it doesn't, I don't think um, it's necessary for us to come in with the whole thing laid out in stone. Okay. Um, Fair enough. It, yeah. it needs to be, it's going to need to be a conversation. Um, sure. But people have real and important questions and we've been trying to... Um, you know, I'm not trying to hide behind anything in saying that. No, I, no. I just think that's my commitment to the political process and and collaborating with who's at the table. Um, sure. That a lot of details of it will need to be worked out. Sure. So I won't ask specific questions, but I, I guess theoretically, or looking at this model, what you're doing is you're kind of taking out a speculative or uh, element. Yeah. Out of um, out of property or out of land, I suppose, right? Like um, non-productive asset gains. Yeah. Part of that will now go to the city to be used for for other housing. Yeah. Is that exactly. right? Okay. So, so the um, elegant thing I think about a, uh, a land value capture is that it both diminishes speculation um, and it generates some income to build 
real non-market affordable housing. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, those things are in tension. If it decreases speculation entirely, then it doesn't generate income. Yeah. Um, But the so one of the premises of a land value capture is that a community um, creates increase in land value. I mean, the some of that is public investment in transit or, you know, increased uh, or improved community centers or other public amenities that the public through the government mm-hmm. is paying for and those increase the property values. So then mm-hmm. the land value capture captures some of that back to to put back into uh, things the public needs, like mm-hmm. like right now, affordable housing. But communities create that public land value too. So I remember a a friend of mine, Matt Hearn, uh, who has lived uh, and done community organizing around Commercial Drive for a long time, I remember Matt saying um, he was part of organizing car-free days on the drive in the very early days and right. for many years. And his comment was that he worried that all of this good community building work he did in the neighborhood made the neighborhood cooler and priced all his friends out <laughs> of it. You know, like yeah, fair concern. That, uh, car-free days is a great example of how um, a community increases the value of the land that sure. it sits on in its own efforts to just make a better place for one another yeah. um, in that area. So, um, so there should be some community benefit from that, mm-hmm. I think from community creating that and from the public through the government creating that and the land value capture attempts to address that. Sure. Is is this going to be something like, how do you make this palatable with landowners? Sure. I mean, I think because you, you, you also admitted yourself that, you know, they've been quite um, resistant to a lot of zoning changes uh, historically. Right. Yeah. I think we're in a place where some housing and tax conversations that might not have been possible a decade ago are because mm-hmm. everyone in Vancouver, to some degree or another, is is experiencing this housing crisis. Sure. Not at the same level, um, but I know lots of, uh, you know, because I grew up in a home, in an exclusionary zoning home on the west side, um, lots of those families I grew up with whose kids can't afford to live in the city anymore, mm-hmm. and they're seeing them leave. So there's this tension, I think, for a lot of homeowners where they um, they want their own property to continue to increase in value, but they also want their children to be able to buy or rent or live in the city and have grandchildren near them and all of that. So mm-hmm. um, I think the reality is that that people come at this with all sorts of tensions that they're experiencing (laughs) in their own life. Um, And I'm hopeful. uh, And, uh, you know, this may be one of the wilder hopes I have. I'm hopeful we can have a pretty civilized conversation about that. Um, There, Mm -hmm. uh, I know, will be people who who oppose more different kinds of housing being built in their neighborhood. There are people who have a pretty knee-jerk reaction to taxing. Um, But I do think the way that a land value capture is framed around taxing a portion of that lift mm-hmm. um, hopefully invites a different kind of conversation about how land value increases and how we can all address the the challenges that we face as a city through that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we will see how that 
you know, how civilized that conversation <laughs> can be um, online and, and offline in the next month Yeah, and a half. I, I think one thing to keep in mind, I think, for everyone engaging in, the, in, in political discussions, it's very easy to get heated, and that's totally fine, but there's nuance with everything, right? It's not just... You get the term yimby and nimby thrown thrown around quite a bit, but I don't think the categories are as cut and dry as that, yeah. right? Like there's it's a lot there are a lot more shades of gray in the middle, and even in, even myself um, in my own political positions, when once I hear some other sides, and I love talking to other people from other sides who are civil, uh, you do realize that you know things are a little more complicated. It's not a simple solution, and you need some collaborative effort on a governmental level to find real solutions. Yeah, I, I agree. And and um, and I think it'll be interesting to see in this, this election uh, how we go about that. I mean, right now, um, folks from all different parties are uh, have this rhetoric that we want to work together and people are open to many <laughs> solutions. Um, and so when people have been asking me, how's the campaign going? How's the election going? Um, I keep getting to say, you know, so far it's great. I mean, so far I'm having these these really exciting and inspiring conversations with Vancouverites who are concerned about the direction Vancouver is headed in and mm-hmm. who want to be part of doing something about it, mm-hmm. um, who who have some hope that that's possible. Um, but there is a lot uh, for some people to lose on the table. I mean, and I think we saw some of that reaction to the provincial government's school tax, sure, um, which has a been a very vocal minority mm-hmm. uh, of the um, of the city. But you know, I, I also I just want to say I have no illusion that it will all be sort of <laughs> kumbaya and and holding hands. It's going to be a tough election because these are deeply entrenched trenched inequalities that we want to to address, and that. Mm-hmm. Is challenging. Um, just shifting gears a little bit here. Related yeah. to housing is small business. Sure. And there are so many upfront costs to starting, you know, a new office in Vancouver, a new storefront, which has led to a lot of small businesses, particularly on the retail end, being priced out of the market. So we've seen predominantly in Vancouver, you know, big chains and high-end storefronts dominating commerce in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. How do we change that? It's a great question. I um, am a big lover of small business. Mm-hmm. Um, I have worked in a number of them, uh, and as my my children may, with some annoyance, tell you, I sort of insist, whatever the inconvenience that we we you know when we're driving through Chilliwack on a family trip, we <laughs> don't stop at uh, a chain just off the road. That we go into town. I mean, um, sure. And and my own love of small business is a part that sort of um that heart feeling of of loving the culture of them and getting to chat with um folks running them but i uh i also when i worked at the columbia institute center for civic governance we did a study with the Sauter school of business and with loco bc who are a incubator and supporter of local businesses mm-hmm. around the economic impact the multiplier effect of small businesses um, and so one of the outcomes of it, um, and again, I'm not an economist, so here's me doing my best Neither on mind. that. Neither We're good. Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, was that uh, small and local businesses recirculate um, more of their funds in the local economy than large mm. 
um, global businesses. So they have twice as much benefit to the local economy, you know, because they're hiring local accountants and local graphic designers and uh, all of those sorts of things that a global multinational would be doing in some central office, some far off place. Mm -hmm. Um, So which is just to say, I think they're uh, people have their own, um, you know, experiential reasons, sort of warm, fuzzy reasons why they love their own local businesses. Um, but uh, from a from a governmental and an economic perspective, there are some real tangible and measurable benefits to mm-hmm. having more uh, small and local businesses in a city. So and small businesses can become big businesses, right? Sure. That's where right. that's where they yeah. come from. So yeah. businesses are sort of rising and falling every day. So. Yeah, and there's uh, and there's lots of examples of those in Vancouver uh, that Absolutely. continue to be beloved um, mm-hmm. by people here. So, um, so there's lots of things like on housing that the mm-hmm. city can be doing um, around small business. I hear a lot from the small businesses that I that I go to regularly myself, frustrations about delays and permitting mm-hmm. and many of those sorts of things. Um, there's lots of conversation, I think, a lo- across the political spectrum about how there can be efficiencies created at City Hall, how th- those processes can be streamlined both in housing, particularly the kinds of housing we most desperately need, um, mm-hmm. and in supporting small business. And there's different ways the city can do that. So I've heard people suggest um, that the city, uh, I think Shauna Sylvester in her platform this week put out that the city needs a small business ombud person. Am I okay. saying that right? Um, um, for, yeah, yes, exactly. You know, yeah, you know what I mean? Um, I've heard suggestions from, from the BIA in my own neighborhood similar to that, that there needs mm-hmm. to be some central place that's supporting small businesses. And maybe it's... Uh, one person, maybe it's some portion of the Vancouver Economic Commission, which right now doesn't look at small businesses at all, but could um, be given more of a focus like that. So that's one piece of it. Mm -hmm. Related to housing, as you said, one of the other things we're seeing a lot of in neighborhoods across the city is that um, because, I'm going to try to tie a couple things together, because so much of our uh, housing pressure is being put on main roads. Mm -hmm. That's where we're building because these neighborhoods are off limits right now for building more kinds of housing. What we're seeing is big developments along all our main stretches. Um, And so small businesses who were in the little old buildings that used to be on those stretches are getting knocked out. Um, Mm -hmm. And for most of those developers, the thing that makes the most sense for them is having a couple big retail spaces rather than a whole bunch of little ones they have to manage. Um, and signing big companies who can who can sign and wait three years while yeah. the development happens and then move in. Um, so, you know, and that's just this. I mean, that's ov- obviously that's what makes the most sense for them. Except that the reality, if everybody's doing that, is that we're seeing our neighborhoods and these main commercial stretches of our neighborhoods that create so much of the vibrancy and uniqueness of a neighborhood mm-hmm. are all kind of becoming more and more the same. Mm-hmm. So there's a number of ways that the city um, can can have some influence over what that commercial retail space looks like in a building. 
uh, in a new building, but also they can take some of that development pressure off of the main stretches by allowing uh, low and mid-range development in in the neighborhoods around it so okay. that we're not just seeing every uh, every building along a main commercial stretch. Mm-hmm. So this goes back to the zoning. Down. So yeah, yeah, so it's also about zoning and about speculation. It's about where mm-hmm. that pressure exists. There's so much speculation right now on our commercial stretches. Sure. Um, and I mean, all so all of these things relate because there's so much speculation on our main stretches, um, those... Uh, land values are skyrocketing and businesses are forced to pay a hugely increasing property tax Mm -hmm. um, bill because, and again, I'm just going to get really nerdy for a second, because of something called uh, triple net lease. So so those businesses are actually paying on um, on the perceived value and not the real value mm. of their land. Okay. So if it's possible that it could be a 10-story condo tower, that's oh, what they're, that's yeah, the yeah, value yeah. of the property that they're paying tax on mm-hmm. rather than just... Even if it is a two-story building. Yeah, even if it's a in. strip yeah. mall that's um, been there forever. Yeah, okay. Uh, or, you know, been there a very long time. So... Um, that that seems so unfair yeah. that you. I mean, that's absurd. <laughs> so that's something that needs to be addressed, and in and my understanding is that needs the we would need the province again. Yeah. Okay. To work with the city on that, the tools that the city has are limited um, mm-hmm. on a number of these things. But so that's one piece is this triple net lease. One piece is about spreading out some of the pressure for new homes, mm-hmm. um, which uh, which is not only. Um, tricky because it creates some change in neighborhoods, though, um, as we know, those neighborhoods are kind of emptying out anyway. So, sure. um, but the the other political reality in Vancouver is that big developers aren't interested in building a, a fourplex in Caresdale. They're interested in building um, condo towers. Yeah, that's where the money is. <laughs> that's exactly. And, and there are businesses that are structured, even if there are people there who who understand that there should be more housing options in neighborhoods like it's the structure is to make money mm-hmm. housing it as an investment that's the housing market and so they're building condo towers on main stretches so mm-hmm. um that's a political challenge too that it's not um going to make big developers happy yeah. if we're limiting those kinds of developer developments in favor of uh more options throughout neighborhoods so some of that is about small businesses as well. And sure. and I think that they're very deeply related. And I think most Vancouverites see that in their neighborhoods, that these things are related. It, mm-hmm. it matters how much foot traffic there is and whatnot. Um, one of the, uh, in addition to all of that, one of the solutions that One City is talking about and that I'm very excited about as a lover of small business um, is looking at bringing in, um, replicating a policy that San Francisco has had for a long time, which is about um, creating different tax rates for small and local businesses and global multinational change. Um, And in Vancouver, um, the research I've done suggests that maybe there's a kind of third level in that because we do have lots of 
local businesses that mm-hmm. have grown from here um, and might occupy a kind of middle ground. Like exactly. they're not a small mom and pop shop anymore, but they're not based out of Houston and have 18,000 locations across the globe. Sure. Like, so, so is that based on like revenue or is it based on um, so Francis- how, how companies capitalize? Like... Uh, San Francisco's model, as I understand, is based on um, the number of locations. Oh, okay, interesting. Uh, that there are, um, and then there's some mechanism that they look at. The locations all have to have things in common, so it's not just that they're owned by the same person, but it's um, it's really, I think, attempting to get at some unique culture. Mm-hmm. So. If the business has a, if it's a restaurant and it has the same menu at every location or, you know, there are some, um, some tools like that that they try to figure out if it's a chain or or otherwise. So some of that, um, San Francisco's uh, ordinance on this has been around like 20 years and they've had a number of times where it's been re-voted and strengthened and expanded around the city um, because because locals in in San Francisco love it because they have these vibrant now San Francisco has a massive housing crisis too but of course, yeah. um they have a lot of small businesses throughout their neighborhoods and it means have you been to San Francisco only as a child okay so <laughs> i remember I'm, alcatraz that's I, about it <laughs> i went to grad school down there and i and i remember there you know neighborhoods have different feels between them because they're not all the same um mm. and they're there are a ton of small businesses on every stretch through the city. So San Francisco keeps uh, strengthening this ordinance that they have because it's so popular there. And I think um, that we could create a similar uh, model in Vancouver because what I hear from people throughout neighborhoods around the city is concern about losing small businesses and losing the kind of uniqueness and, and character of their neighborhood and their main stretches. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. One of the uh, distinctions I like, so we hear a lot about neighborhood character from people fighting against having renters and yes. apartments in their neighborhood. Um, and uh, and also I've heard a lot of people talk about character as coming from the people in a neighborhood and not the structures. Mm-hmm. And I think small businesses are a big piece of that. You know uh, and get a taste of a neighborhood from the businesses that dot its main streets and and increasingly exists scattered throughout neighborhoods as well. Mm-hmm. So um, supporting those matters a lot to me and and creating incentives uh, that that those kinds of businesses can continue to thrive in Vancouver uh, and and be created and expanded and even in new developments that we support small businesses coming in on the ground floor rather than just more big sort of big box sure. stores yeah um, love it all of that we have we have a couple more things that I want to get to before I yeah. uh, <laughs> before we end here you wanted to talk about the environment and climate change I want to talk about it as well as you as you sort of alluded to you know you've been an activist for climate justice um, for a few years now um, including spearheading national efforts within the United Church to divest the church's funds from fossil fuels. Now you want to direct your efforts through city council. So when I hear that, the first thing that I wonder is, what tools does the city of Vancouver have at its disposal 
to combat climate change. So what are you proposing that city council should start doing? Yeah. So I actually am very inspired by the level of climate leadership that cities around the globe have taken on, usually because of some absence of climate leadership from elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there are a number of tools that local governments have and can use to be tackling climate change. Um, When I first, I sometimes say I I feel like I came to climate change late. I had spent the first decade of my adult life doing kind of frontline social service and anti-poverty work around Mm -hmm. Vancouver uh, predominantly. Um, And it was that human impact of climate change that got me paying attention. I was, um, I will admit, a little bit uh, indifferent to the sort of wetlands and polar bears stuff okay. uh, around climate change. But as I began to see in Hurricane Katrina and other big disasters, the real human scale and and very unjust uh, impact of, of climate change, that got me involved. And when I started paying attention to climate change, we had um, the BC Liberals provincially in government and Stephen Harper's Conservatives federally. And it mm-hmm. just felt like this very uh, depressing stalemate on climate, that it was unclear how we could get governments to act. Um, mm-hmm. But but local governments were doing something about it. So I continue to um, feel very optimistic about the role that local governments can play on these things. Um, and there's lots of things that they can do. So uh, public transit is a huge piece right. of climate solutions. Um, uh, and it needs to be affordable and accessible and, and robust. And mm-hmm. there's lots that local governments um, in Vancouver can be doing on that front. Um, complete communities are a big part of it. So just to go back again to the housing conversation, <laughs> creating more housing options where people work and live to right. reduce commute times to mean that means that people can live and work and play uh, in neighborhoods, and Mm -hmm. we're not all moving around uh, as often. Um, And then there are other pieces uh, around, I think there's lots of greening efforts that the city has already done. And I think Vision deserves some uh, credit, a lot of credit on the greenest city efforts that they Mm -hmm. have undertaken. but it hasn't been perfect. Uh, and and in particular, I think there's a critique that a lot of the greening that Vancouver has done has made it um, a, a friendlier place for development uh, and a sort of more profitable place for people to invest money. Interesting. Um, so, um, and I in, think... In what I, sense? Like, what do you mean when you say that? I mean, I think uh, there's been, you know... I feel I feel torn on this all the time because so um, a lot of uh, greening has been about sort of beautifying Vancouver mm-hmm. and giving it this world class global stage reputation, right? Um, that has uh, exacerbated the housing crisis for mm. a lot of people at the low and moderate end of the income spectrum. Yeah. Um, I think that's real. Mm-hmm. I think that is a real challenge we need to tackle. Um, And there's been a lot of good uh, retrofit work and uh, renewable energy work that's happened locally that is deserving of global praise and recognition. So um, I just sit in that tension, but I think what we 
really need to be taking from it is that our climate efforts at the local level need to be explicitly addressing inequality and affordability so that there's Mm. more public trust in them. So it doesn't just feel like we're building the seawall because it increases the property values of those who live (laughs) near it. Um, uh, But that we're spreading that out across the city um, and that solutions like uh, public transit, like complete communities and neighborhoods um, uh, can see some benefit for people across the income spectrum. So it sounds like instead of sort of patchwork policy where you have like environmental policy here, housing policy here, you're trying to connect all of them together. Yes. Is that right? So radical. Okay. Isn't it? It's <laughs> outrageous. It's, um, it's funny because, so you know, that's how, that's how households are run. Yeah. Right? Sure. I mean, that's how you run, you, you run your household. It's not uh, you put chores in a separate, you know, yeah. place I mean, you, and work it, in a separate place. It's, it's like all it's all together. And people, yeah. um, people are living all of it all together. So those are some solutions. Like I said, there's been some stuff done on retrofits. My... My one of my jobs um, uh, that I've been wrapping up to run has been setting up this national um, climate program for the United Church of Canada to to meet their climate target. And a big focus of it has been on retrofitting buildings because mm-hmm. a huge amount, particularly in cities of um, of a region's carbon emissions, come from buildings. So Vancouver can continue to push uh, on retrofitting old buildings um, okay. and I hope that the province will do more of that as well um, and one of the other pieces in Vancouver is about um, having local jobs pay enough that people can afford to live you know there's the 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 piece of the affordability spectrum that's about creating more affordable housing options and the other piece of it is that wages have been stagnant mm-hmm. in Vancouver and so people just can't afford to live here on the same wage they had a decade ago when the housing costs have skyrocketed. And so a piece of that conversation that isn't, that is about affordability, but it's also, I think, about climate is uh, supporting well-paying local jobs so that people can live and work Mm -hmm. in in the same place. So all of that, uh, I think, is important and are tools that the city has been using to various degrees and can and should um, continue to use. I still hear in climate discussions uh, a lot of sort of personal consumer solutions right. to the climate crisis. And um, and it is my very firm belief <laughs> uh, that the era of personal consumer solutions to the climate crisis is over. We've tried it. It didn't work. Mm-hmm. It didn't work fast enough. Uh, And so we need to be doing some broader systemic things, too. And for me, that is in part. uh, So one of the tools on that that the city has is is fossil fuel divestment. Um, And a motion has come up through council a couple times. um, And and I've been trying to get this information. Um, I don't think that the city has divested from fossil fuels. They've sort of looked at it from a few different angles. But um, I think that that conversation should move continue to move forward so that we're matching uh, our finances with the efforts that we're trying to make in terms of buildings and mm-hmm. planning and infrastructure. Walking the talk, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. again, so <laughs> outrageous an idea. Um, the other piece uh, that that I'm excited about and that I hope 
the one city will bring to the election discussion and that I'm hopeful we can move forward with an, whoever makes up the next council um, is about uh, a some accountability from fossil fuel companies for the um, costs that climate change uh, is is creating for cities. So you you may have heard a few months ago, my sense of time is... Uh, really elastic right now. <laughs> I think it was a few months ago. Um, the city of New York uh, launched this um, legal challenge against a number of the big fossil fuel companies um, for uh, for funds to pay for its climate costs. Really? In the city. Yeah. And the, oh, wow. the idea is so um, Exxon and many other companies have been have been found to have known about and hidden uh, climate information and, in fact, in a lot of cases, funded mm -hmm. uh, climate denial for decades. Right. Um, so there's some parallel with cases against big tobacco, mm -hmm. um, you know, that that information existed, you didn't put it out there, and now now we're paying publicly for the impacts of climate change. Right. There's an estimate uh, report to council in... Uh, July of this year that estimated that Vancouver would need to spend a billion dollars between now and um, uh, 80 years from now, 2100. Okay. I don't know how we're going to say those years. In the next 80 years, <laughs> yeah. Vancouver would need to spend a billion dollars uh, to prevent sea level rise from impacting city infrastructure. Really? Um, wow. So those are the kinds of costs uh, that that legal challenges like New York City's hmm. are proposing shouldn't be borne out by individual consumers. And and the, we shouldn't feel like it's because you drove today or it's that plastic cup mm -hmm. that you threw out. We should be shifting behavior. But it's the, a system. There's a larger accountability. Yeah. Um, and cities are increasingly doing this. So the... Um, Is West that something that you would push if you were in city council to yeah. do something really absolutely okay. so so west coast environmental law locally has mm -hmm. a campaign um calling for municipalities to join a class action lawsuit uh, around um the costs that climate change is inflicting upon particularly coastal but but municipalities around the province so mm -hmm. um so I think that Vancouver should join that, and it would be significant to have Vancouver join that. Um, and I mean, there's this latest report about the billion dollars to prevent sea level rise, but there's all sorts of costs that that can and should be factored into how a municipality as large as Vancouver is um, paying to adapt to climate change. I have mm -hmm. a number of friends who work uh, in live in the downtown east side and the cost of having in this smoke of having safe cooling shelters for people um is a piece of that yeah uh, fair enough. i mean there's lots of of people related and infrastructure related costs that are going to be borne by cities and so there's a question about who should be accountable for those so mm -hmm. that is a th that that um corporate accountability piece around climate justice i think is an important piece uh, of how we as a local government tackle climate change. Um, and then the piece about creating um, complete communities and mm -hmm. public transit and the sort of the the climate pieces that um, 
we can come at from an inequality lens Mm -hmm. or the other half, I think, of doing all of that well. Cool. Very interesting. You know, I knew nothing about any of that. And I always get a little uh, skeptical, I think, when when people say, "Okay, we're going to tackle climate change. But you've given me very tangible ideas that I think uh, will be interesting to, to see how it plays out in the campaign and the debate. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do want to touch on something about the campaign. Yes. One last topic. Uh, Brandon Yan, your fellow One City Council candidate, recently made national news after essentially curating his mm-hmm. Twitter account. He deleted his Twitter history uh, from a certain date. I don't want to talk about his case specifically uh, because he's not here. Yep. And I don't think that's fair. Uh, but I want to talk about something bigger. And it's this idea that as millennials, you and I are both mm-hmm. millennials, mm-hmm. Um, we're sort of on the forefront of this culture where everything we've said in the last 10, 12 years has been documented online. And there's more photos of us and videos of us than any other generation before us. And as we enter um, not only professional lives, but public lives, as, as you and Brandon have, you know, these things come under great scrutiny. <laughs> are are we the guinea pigs in what will eventually be a culture shift where people like you and I, when we're older, will we'll be like, you know, something someone did when they were 20 is not, as long as it wasn't criminal, um, not a big deal. Yeah, I think you're exactly right that we're guinea pigs in this. Um, and as we figure out how to navigate it, so too are the media's trying to figure it out and other generations are trying to figure out how to react to it. I mm-hmm. So I got questions. I get questions from um, many people I know who don't know what the Twitter is, you know, <laughs> who, who are curious about what, who read an article in print, in their print paper, yeah. um, and are trying to understand the issue. I mean, I think lots of people are grappling with exactly this um, question, uh, which is to some degree uh, um, a wrestling with where public and private lines get drawn, mm-hmm. um, and which is a question we're all living out um, as as our public lives become uh, private lives become more public. So yeah, yeah, I think we'll continue to navigate it, um, and uh, as we as we continue to figure out how to do that. Um, I think it makes a lot of sense for uh, all of us to have some to curate what we keep and what stays online Mm -hmm. um, to whatever our comfort level is. Uh, I think what Brandon did made a lot of sense for him, and I I have full support for him having made that decision um, so that he gets some say in what the narrative is about him. Um, yeah, and, I can, there's just no rules, yeah. right? And that's kind of the, the hard part. I, I mean, and we see even in, I mean, the some of the reaction to it mm-hmm. uh, reinforced the need for it, that that online discussions can get very mean very quickly. Uh, yeah. And so, of course, you should get to say, you should, you should, in an ideal world, be able to say, well, what I tweeted when I was 20 doesn't represent me. Um, but if somebody's going to use it as a weapon against you, then mm-hmm. then yeah, you get to curate that. I mean, I think the thing that matters most to me um, is that we we figure out how our actions and our relationships with communities um, can be the thing that gives us integrity and not some tweet from twenty years ago. So some right. of the criticism, right, is like if you can't uh, if 
if you can't defend who you were 15 years ago, then how do we know that you are really committed to the things that you're saying now? Mm -hmm. Um, And I just think we need to take a bigger lens on that and look at how people have lived their lives and not what they have posted. No, and I agree. And I think one element as well that we have to consider is that culture also evolves. It's not Mm -hmm. just ourselves personally. So if you look at you know, one of the the biggest uh, comedy specials of all time is uh, Eddie Murphy's uh, Raw, mm-hmm. I believe. Mm-hmm. And when you watch it now, it has not aged well. Like it's extremely <laughs> homophobic. It's something that I don't think you could fill out. You could pack a stadium of people to watch, but at that time it was big. Yeah. So if you were, you know, in your twenties or thirties, and you went to that show and you laughed. Does that make you a homophobe today? And it's like, n- not really, because you have to put things into into, into context, right? And I, I just feel like, and I'm not saying Brandon did anything like no, that. No, no, That's not yeah. my suggestion. But I'm just saying that a 20-year-old tweeting about something, especially if it's about politics, um, even compared to a 25-year-old, it's mm-hmm. a big difference. Mm-hmm. And I would say our culture as well over the last... 10 years has changed so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think about when um, same-sex marriage was being introduced in Canada. Yeah. And our population was split 50-50. Yeah. Right? And now it's more like 80-20, maybe 90-10. Um, but does that mean that the people who were against it, if you if you were they were against it then, you know, d- is that a judgment on them now, today, 15 years later? Like, it's... Yeah, I think the thing um, that we... We need to allow people to grow and change like culture has. So mm-hmm. so it's a tension, absolutely, that I don't think we should say, well, if you laughed at a homophobic joke 20 years ago, like you can you can never be a good person. Right. You know, and we will always <laughs> hold that against you. I mean, if you if that was you 20 years ago and then you learned and grew and met new people and realized that that was an inappropriate joke that you wouldn't laugh at today. Mm-hmm. Like, great. We should be celebrating that that has shifted I think and not holding people to it and that I think you're right that that's exactly the tension of sort of things that stagnate um when you wrote them Mm -hmm. and that you are supposed to be held to um and and there's tensions I think like some of this makes me think of the the John A. McDonald statue in Victoria and the conversations you know where there's all this debate about John A. McDonald and people will say um, well, everyone was racist when he was racist. So, like, yeah, what you know, what can you do? Like, and that, now you just uh, open up a can right? of worms. I mean, sorry, <laughs> as we try to wrap up. I mean, it's I. I just think uh, to continue my thread of there are no easy answers. Sure. Like, um, yeah, he, yeah, he should. Yeah, John A. Yeah. McDonald should have known that all human beings deserve to be treated like human beings, and mm-hmm. and even in his time, that shouldn't have been. A difficult thing to understand, and he should be held to that account. Um, and but we're you know, also talking about a statue from the eighties. This yeah, is not I mean, like yeah, some and then there's all historic sorts of like, art that, yeah, that is still there, right? Exactly. So which kind of, I think at that point you're just like, what's the big deal? Like, yeah, but I think you do also want to allow that people can change. So I think yeah. about this a lot in terms of the um, in terms of U.S. politics because. I sometimes hear people, you know, there's a lot of demonizing of Trump voters, but ultimately, um, I think for progressives, you want some of those people to feel like, oh, I mm-hmm. I made a decision 
that wasn't the right decision. And I see that now. And there's space for me to name that and and learn and and act and vote differently into the future. And if we're going to say, like, everyone who voted for Trump is forever and always a hateful racist bigot with no possibility of redemption, like, that doesn't create a, a new political reality. So No, not at yeah, all. It's these tensions, I think. There needs to be space mm-hmm. for people to change their minds. That That's our best case scenario of addressing all of these issues that, quite frankly, we need people to be learning and growing into and building some social solidarity on. Um, and if the reality of the political climate, as it is right now, means that there isn't much space online for forgiveness and redemption, mm-hmm. um, then, yeah, you curate your social media feed to protect yourself and to focus on the work that matters, which is social solidarity on these issues and, and coming together to address them. So um, I might have just gotten, you know, a little ministry there. No, um, I loved but, it. <laughs> uh, but I think Brandon made the right call. I think we are guinea pigs and we will continue to yeah. navigate that and hopefully... Um, I mean, I think hopefully we can also figure out how we create space for one another in it um, and show other generations what that looks like to be able to um, give people space to have changed from what they said in the past and to Mm -hmm. not hold it all against everyone. And And I think it just comes down to empathy without uh, partisanship, right? Because I think everyone has something they did that they feel silly about or sure, regretted or whatever. Sure, we all had a bad haircut. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I see this with my, I have a four-year-old and a 14-year-old. I remember when my teenager uh, said to me at some point, she might have been nine or 10, she mm-hmm. told me um, that I my clothes never matched because to match, they had to be all the same color. Oh. And I was like, yeah, well, yes, that by that definition, I almost never... I almost never wear all yellow, okay. you know, head to toe. Yeah. Um, uh, and obviously n- to her as a 14-year-old now, that is a ridiculous understanding of, course, of what matching yeah. means. Um, and if I forever accuse her of not matching and like, I just think we, yeah, we practice how these things change in all of our lives and we will all be embarrassed by things we said. Absolutely. When we were nine and 20. I mean, I think... I'm embarrassed by things I say like a week ago and it's just like, it is what it is. I was just going to say, so, I mean, I am very conscious in this election that there are things uh, I am idealistic about that, that me having served for three or four years might think like, oh, isn't it embarrassing that I thought um, that that was possible or this, I mean, there's so much nuance to Mm -hmm. so many of these local issues. Yeah. Um, that that I'm sure there are things a couple of years into office I will better understand than I do now. Sure. Um, and, you know, it may be that re-listening to this uh, podcast makes me cringe a little bit. Oh, and it my will. Because it's grunt. your own voice. Yeah, it's your own voice. That's own the voice. only reason why. You, you were otherwise very elegant. Yeah, But right. for me, myself, I cringe at my, the sound of my own voice. So that, yeah, that don't so, take that as a so cue. So we can all practice, yeah. you know, to me, to me four years from now. Uh a little bit of self-compassion around these things uh, and for one another as we juggle 
having more and more of our lives uh, online for public shame and ridicule. Absolutely. Well, I will say this, um, you know, like I said, I think you spoke eloquently about uh, ideas that were important to you. One of the things that I think makes you and Brandon cool is that you come, you both come off as very authentic. And uh, maybe you had misspoken in the podcast at some point or mm-hmm. you will in your campaign. But um, I think yep. as long as you're, you're authentic, you're still going to uh, captivate people and, and bring them onto your onto your team. So, bef- oh, well, and that comes full circle because that is what uh, you know. As uh, as I said, when people have offered to to pray for me or hold me in their heart or whatever, that mm-hmm. piece around authenticity, around really getting to um, be myself and represent communities in this campaign. Um, matters the most to me. So I appreciate that you naming <laughs> that uh, and and anyone who listens and wants to um lovingly hold me to that standard, I will appreciate it. And for those people that want to put you in their prayers or their shavasana like me, mm-hmm. um how do they find out more about you in one Great. city? So uh you can find one city online, uh onecityvancouver.ca or on Twitter uh and Facebook and Instagram and I am Christine Boyle on all of those places as well. Uh, each of our candidates, um, Brandon Yan, and our school board candidates, Carrie Bursick and Jennifer Reddy and Erica Jaff, uh, find all of us. We would love to have people come out uh, and meet us and ask questions and, and join in. So on the website, there's an events page and people can find out where, where we'll be and come cool. and meet us and volunteer if you have the time and you like Um the sorts of ideas that we are putting forward for for making Vancouver a more affordable and vibrant place. We, uh, I can't promise that you'll meet me and think I'm cool, but um, <laughs> it has been a really, a really incredible experience for me to get to do politics with this group of people. So I hope that that's other people's experience too. Awesome. Well, Christine, I would like to thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to sit down with me. And I just want to wish you uh, all the best to to you and your campaign. Thank you. And I will say, uh, you know, may may this podcast and your work in it uh, help build social solidarity in Vancouver and give people a better understanding uh, and love of one another. Love it. I'll How's take that? it. Thank okay, you great. so much. Ladies and gentlemen, she's running for city council and she wants to take urgent action on making neighborhoods more inclusive. She is Christine Boyle, and I'm Mo Amir, telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.